A reading from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do you want me to do for you? According to the philosopher James K.A. Smith, this is the first, last, and most fundamental question of discipleship to Jesus. Jesus spends a lot of time with his disciples on the road because he is concerned about how they are curating their hearts. Following Jesus is being intentional and attentive to what you love. The question, what do you want me to do for you, is behind almost every question Jesus asks. It's behind the question, will you follow me? It is, according to Smith, the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask of us precisely because we are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. And so as short as this story of Bartimaeus is, he is one of the most important figures in Mark's gospel. But in order to appreciate that, you need to know a little bit of background first. Jesus, as you know, was Jewish, so was his first century uh, gospel writer, Mark. And I know I say this a lot, but part of the problem is that when we pick up things like Mark's gospel two millennia later in a vastly different kind of culture, uh, in, a, in a very different part of the world, there is oftentimes a strange bit of distance between us and the story. Add to that, we have literally millions of books that we can choose from to, to read every day, billions upon billions of uh, internet pages and articles and things like that, not to mention the 720,000 hours of video content being added to YouTube every single day. My daughter is trying to watch all of it. <laughs> right? <laughs> For a lot of people in Jesus' day, the scriptures were among only a small handful of texts that they would come across in their life. And the scriptures were really the only text that they would encounter on a, a regular basis. And so there were all kinds of things that a first century audience would have been clued in onto and would have, uh, would have grabbed onto in a way that just kind of flies by us when we read the text. For example... Isaiah 35 presents this vision of the coming Messiah that any first century Jew would have recognized. 
He is one who will strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Uh, Sometimes that word uh, translated for God is sometimes Messiah, sometimes your God. He will come with vengeance, he will come with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then, when that happens, The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And here's what I want you to see for today. When the Messiah comes, the blind will receive sight. It will be a sign of strength for those with feeble hands, those with weakened knees. There will be like water coming into this dry and desert land. Now, in a sense, this idea of of signs and wonders that we see uh, associated with Jesus, that we see kind of all throughout his life and ministry, uh, wasn't really something new in the Hebrew imagination. Elijah, you know, called down fire from heavens. He fed the multitudes. He, uh, he, he, he healed the sick. And so there's a category for that kind of person. And it's, it's a prophet. There's a, uh, the miracle worker for a Hebrew would have been somebody that would have been identified as a prophet. But Jesus, Mark is telling us, is so much more. No one has opened the eyes of the blind or done all the things that Jesus has done. Nobody has taught with authority. All these things are features of the Messiah's reign, this new way of being in the world that will come in and through this Messiah. And so all of the previous chapters of Mark's gospel are leading up to this essential moment. To set the scene, uh, Mark gives us a little bit of a geographic note. He lets us know that the disciples and Jesus are on the road to Jerusalem. They have come to a city called Jericho, which you may know from the song, right? The walls come tumbling down. This was a common stop in a village, uh, in a pilgrimage to the holy city. Pilgrims from Galilee would have come down the east side of the Jordan River. They would have stopped in Jericho, and then they would have continued on the 20-mile hike up to Jerusalem. They would have encountered an elevation gain of roughly 3,500 feet. It's 840 feet below sea level in Jericho, 2,400 feet in Jerusalem. So it would have been an arduous journey, but millions of people have have traveled that road throughout uh, Israel's life. Uh, Thousands upon thousands would do this every year as a way of uh, making a trip up to the holy city for the Passover. And there off to this well-worn road is a man named Bartimaeus. And he's sidelined in every way. Physically, he is off the side of the road but he's also marginalized. He's also cut off from his community. He calls out for Jesus, but the people all around him tell him to be quiet. He's a nuisance. He's a beggar on the side of the road. He's an interruption. In their mind, they're like, don't you know who this Jesus is? Do you have any idea how many followers on Twitter this guy has? Dude had two ads in the Super Bowl this year. He's kind of a big deal. Like, who are you to think that you can interrupt him? He doesn't have time for you. But still, Bartimaeus, he doesn't let up. He calls out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
And this is the very first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is called the son of David. This is shorthand for the Messiah. The Hebrew scriptures say that the coming king will be from the line of David. So he is calling out who he thinks Jesus is, the Messiah who has come to offer mercy. The Messiah who has come to heal the blind. One who has come to bring a a new kingdom into the world where those who are closest to him will experience the full reign of God. Now, it's fascinating that the disciples who have spent all kinds of time with Jesus, they are blind to this reality of who Jesus is because they keep putting on him all kinds of assumptions and agendas that they have and they want Jesus to bless those things. But this man who needs mercy, he knows exactly who Jesus is. The next words are among the most revealing in the Bible. Jesus stopped for him. And he called out, call him to me. Jesus, who is the embodiment of God's justice, God's mercy, stops the parade on the way up to Jerusalem because he hears the cry of somebody who needs mercy. And throwing his cloak aside, Bartimaeus comes to Jesus. We'll come back to that. It's an important detail. But that's where Jesus asks him this most pressing question. What do you want me to do for you? If you remember from last week, it's the exact same question that Jesus asked James and John. They answer, when you bring your kingdom, we want to be seated at your right hand and in your glory. We want power. We want your power. We want your glory. We want a share in all of the authority that you have and all of the perks that go with it. Bartimaeus, on the other hand, just says, I want to see. I don't need anything else. Jesus responds, go, your faith has healed you. Some translations say your faith has saved you. Which is it? Healed you or saved you? And actually it's a false choice because in Greek the word is sozo, which is the same word in the New Testament everywhere it describes Jesus' healing and Jesus' salvation. In other words, Jesus returned him to an integrated whole. He came to bring healing and salvation, mind, body, soul. And in response to this healing, to this salvation, Bartimaeus follows him on the way. Now Mark is a subtle storyteller and this is actually a play on words. Long before the word Christian came about in the vernacular to describe followers of Jesus, they would be known as, the, the life of faith would be known as people who follow the way. This is used all throughout the Gospels in the book of Acts to describe the earliest disciples. This is just a couple of instances of where we see it. All this is to say that followers of Jesus in those early days would know each other. They would refer to each other as people who were followers of the way. And so one of these major themes of the Bible hidden in plain sight is that the way of Jesus is just that. It is a way of life. And so in one sense, Bartimaeus following Jesus on the road is, is literal in the sense that he follows Jesus on the road, on the way up to Jerusalem. But in another sense, it's also Mark is getting a, that he is following him as an apprentice to Jesus' way of life. 
And in that sense, this story is about the true nature of discipleship. To see clearly is to follow Jesus without hesitation. This story comes hot on the heels of uh, the story of another, of, of a rich young man, one who has everything. And he sees Jesus, but he goes away sad because his many possessions have possessed him. They have crowded in his heart. So before we move on, I, I want to take a step back and talk about what this story is doing here at this point. And it's easy to read this kind of story and think, you know, oh, Jesus stopped. He, he stopped to notice the marginalized, to practice a random act of kindness. Jesus is a really nice guy, as though that's the point that Mark is getting at, that Jesus is just really nice. Now, yes, geez, I'm sure he was. But Mark has way more to show us about who Jesus is. So if you can survive just a few more minutes of background, I promise we will get to the part that's about you. And this is not a literature class. But I'm going to put back up uh, this slide that's kind of the, the big picture. You don't need to see all the things in between. We've, we've showed this, in, but, but the, the parts that I want to show you is that there are at least two uh, parts of the story with this little hinge in the middle. And, and the first part is in Galilee. Jesus heals, he, uh, he, he teaches his disciples, he, he calls them, he, he teaches about the kingdom, he often talks in parables, cryptically. He finds himself in conflict with the religious authorities. These are the first 11 chapters of Mark's gospel. It makes it clear that a new king, a new kingdom is on its way. He is, in fact, saying that a new king and a new kingdom has come. Now, this first part of the story takes place over roughly a three-year period. These first you know, nine and a half chapters take place over three years. But then the final part of the story, the scene shifts over to Jerusalem, where the, this king and this kingdom that Jesus has proclaimed goes on to say, but it's not the king that you were expecting. Jesus confronts the religious authorities. He's led to his crucifixion. And the final six and a half chapters of Mark's gospel all get compressed into a one-week period of time. In the Western church, we call this Holy Week or the story of the Passion and in between these times where Jesus goes and proclaims the kingdom, and when Jesus is led to his crucifixion, there is this section in, betw- in between where Jesus is uh, with his disciples on the road, and he's focusing on what the nature of the kingdom is like. The story of Bartimaeus is kind of the, the climax of this middle section. It's this hinge that goes into the third story. And being the gifted storyteller that he is, Mark ends this part of the story by taking us back a little bit. Uh, it's like one of those movies that begins at the end, you know, with the protagonist face down in a swimming pool. It's like, you might be wondering how I got here. And then takes us back to the start. If you haven't seen Sunset Boulevard, check it out. It's awesome. It's classic. Bartimaeus is this culmination of Jesus teaching on discipleship, a heart that has made room for the kingdom looks like this, Mark is telling us. So in a sense, this story doesn't make sense by itself. To understand it, we've got to go back to this series of three vignettes that begin with the healing of a different blind man. If you remember back about a month and a half ago, Mark chapter 8, verse 22, uh, we've got a little chart here to kind of jog your memory. The disciples come to Bethsaida. The people bring to Jesus a blind man to heal. Jesus takes this blind man, takes him out of the city, uh, puts saliva on his eyes, and 
lays his hands on him, asks him, can you see anything? The guy says, sort of, they kind of look like trees walking, right? Bizarre story. And you're like, well, what happened? Did Jesus do it wrong? Is he having a bad day? What's the deal here? Remember that strange story from a few? Okay, good, let's see a few heads nodding. I was like, oh, wow, how bad of a teacher am I? All right. Uh, Jesus lays his hands on this man's eyes again. He looks at him intently and says, can you see now? And the man says, yes, I see everything clearly. This guy, Jesus sends home, says, don't even go into those. Don't tell anybody what you see. He doesn't yet see fully the picture of what Jesus is trying to show. Fast forward to the next scene. Jesus is with his disciples. He's asking them the opinion poll. What are people saying about me? They say, some say you are John the Baptist back from the dead. Some say you are one of the prophets. Some say you're, you know, a, a, a great teacher. So Jesus asks them the question of all questions. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And it seems to us on this side of history, the right, the obvious answer but in the conversation that follows, we see that Peter does not really understand what he is saying. He gets the category right, but he doesn't see that Jesus has fundamentally transformed that category altogether. He is expecting the Messiah to be a, a warlike, a, a nationalist, political leader. And Jesus says, no, I am a different kind of king. Peter doesn't know what to do with a Messiah that has come to show God's mercy to sinners, that has come to ask his disciples to take up the cross and follow him. And so there's variations on this theme for the next two chapters. Uh, chapter 9, verse 30. Jesus again tells the, the 12 that he's going to be crucified, dead, buried. He's going to rise three days later. And the disciples don't know what to make about all this talk about suffering. And so their conversation devolves into an argument about which one of them is going to be the greatest. Jesus tells the 12 that the one who is greatest is the one who gives up trying to be great and learns to serve others. Their third adventure in missing the point takes place in chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus tells the disciples as they're following him to the cross, this time James and John say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And so in these three short chapters, we have three predictions of Jesus' death. We have three failed lessons in discipleship, three instances of the disciples trying to bend the kingdom to their own agenda. And Mark starts all of it with a blind man who does not see clearly at first to make the point that if we don't see Jesus clearly, we are going to end up following a Jesus of our own making. If we don't see him for who he is, if we don't receive him as he comes to us, then we will just make up our own Jesus and follow that one. The 12 are waking up to this idea that Jesus is the Messiah, but their picture is blurry. They can't quite see it clearly. Their hearts are full of all kinds of other concerns. And this is the gospel's way of showing us that divided hearts are way more common than we might think, than we might choose to believe. So then we come to Bartimaeus who doesn't even go back to pick up his cloak. He simply and immediately follows Jesus on the way. He wants to see so that he can follow. And this is the thing that Mark wants us to get. Seeing clearly means following Jesus on the way. And the irony of the story is that it takes a blind man who is able to see Jesus for who he clearly is. 
The disciples are with Jesus all the time. They have no trouble with their eyesight. But their hearts are crowded in and the curvature of their own hearts, their own desires, keeps them from really seeing what Jesus wants from them and what Jesus wants for them. And that is the point where the story turns toward you and me. What are the things that keep us from seeing Jesus? At the heart of this story is Bartimaeus' cloak. And it's this simple and this seemingly irrelevant detail. But chapter 10, verse 50 tells us this. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and followed Jesus. I said we'd come back to it because his cloak is the most important thing that he has. Uh, likely it is his only earthly possession aside from the, the inner robe that he is wearing. And in the first century, if you were a beggar on the side of the road, your, your cloak would be the thing. Like it would be your source of protection from the wind and the rain, the elements, all that stuff. But it would also serve as kind of like a street musician's open guitar case. It would be the thing that you laid out to collect income. And so this is the thing that... that that Bartimaeus needs to live. You can look at the story this way. He has security and he's going to need to risk that security for the one thing that he needs. He has a cloak, but he wants to see. And in order to see, he's going to need to ditch the cloak. So he drops the one thing he has to get the only thing that he really needs. Up until this point in the story, Mark has woven in all of these, these different kind of characters who, who don't see Jesus clearly because they can't bring themselves to drop their cloaks and turn to Jesus. They, they, can't, they can't bring themselves to have their sight restored, to have their hearts made whole. People who cling to all kinds of things, all, all other sources for their identity, for their security. People who look to things to have a sense of self about them. People whose hearts are not yet ready to follow. People who are just like us. After all, we suffer the same kind of blindness when it comes to Jesus, don't we? We spend a good deal of our lives trying to organize and arrange things so that we won't be in Bartimaeus' position. I don't know, maybe between a global pandemic, Chinese spy balloons, UFOs, and AI chatbots programmed to gaslight their conversation partners, we won't, maybe we're tempted to spend a little less time attending to those things, attending to our savings and our medical insurance and our 401ks and all that stuff. Feels like the news has been like, choose your apocalypse lately. It's... <laughs> Now, now, don't get me wrong, like all those things like savings and medical insurance and all that stuff, they're good, they're important things, but it's easy for those things to take on a bigger part of our heart. It's easy for those things to be the biggest thing that we spend our time. It's easy for those things to be what our hearts desire most, and they take on a place in our heart that is larger than they can bear. Managing money, managing property, managing an image, it can become a full-time job that weighs us down so heavily that it becomes impossible for us to spring to our feet and follow Jesus. So when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? The only thing we can think of is, dude, if you could roll back interest rates to like where they were in 2020, that'd be pretty sweet. Then, then it'd be a lot easier for me to follow you. 
But possessions are not the only cloaks we wear, right? James and John show us that status and then achievement, they can capture our hearts just as easily. Our, our desire for greatness names this deep-seated insecurity that our lives won't be meaningful. When I was a youth pastor a long time ago, I would have these regular conversations with high school uh, juniors and seniors right around this time of the year, uh, and they were absolutely convinced that if they did not get into their top-tier you know, level of schools, that their life would be over before it started. Parents, does it sound familiar to some of you whose kids are in that spot? I, I have a friend in Southern California that I caught up with recently. Um, she, she runs her own business uh, through guiding students through the college application process. She used to be, um, she used to work in admissions at a university and then she stopped that to kind of you know, launch her own business. She's been doing that ever since. And a lot of her client base is these high you know, powered super moms uh, that have taken time off of their high-paying jobs to make sure that their kids get into Harvard. And you can spot them a mile away because they, uh, <laughs> they look like they could you know, break out in a spontaneous yoga class like wherever they go. But by the time you know, their, their kids uh, get to my friend who's working them through the admissions process, like, they have all kinds of pressure on them. And so you know, they'll say stuff like, oh, we've already started a couple of nonprofits and sold an algorithm to a tech company and mastered you know, obscure sports like mountain unicycling. <laughs> now, you know something is deeply wrong when you're talking to an eighth grader who was already stressing out, convinced that their life is over if they don't get into the right grad school program. And yet that's where we are. If we don't drop the cloaks of status and achievement, and Jesus asks us, what do you want me to do for you? We might only be able to say something like, make me important so I don't have to face the possibility of not living up to expectations. But there are also the religious cloaks that we wear. Sometimes our certainty, sometimes a very narrow sense of orthodoxy and self-righteousness can become the cloak that we wear. And I don't mean that's just for people who go to church on Sunday, whether your religion is some brand of uber-conservatism or some sort of secular progressivism. When Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? All we can say then is, well, I sure hope that you live up to my expectations. But what would happen if you didn't? If you recognize yourself in any of those descriptions, the story of Bartimaeus has one thing to say to us. In order to gain your sight, you're gonna have to drop your cloak. And, and I get it, like making these cloaks is like the most natural thing for us to do. But if we want to see Jesus face to face, if we want to follow him, if we want our lives to look like his kingdom, we're going to have to shed the cloak. In Mark's gospel, the Pharisees would not give up their religious posturing. That was the cloak they wore. Peter, James, and John would not give up their hope for greatness. That was theirs. The rich young ruler would not part with his securities. That was his cloak. We need to shed our cloaks because when Jesus asks us the question, what do you want me to do for you? If our hearts are crowded in by all of the things that keep us from coming to him, we will keep ourselves from the only one who can bear the weight of all of our heart's longings. We need to shed our cloaks because it's really easy to get comfortable with our blindness. 
We need to shed our cloaks because shedding our cloaks is exactly what God did for us when he became incarnate in a dirty stable, when he hung broken on the cross, when he cast aside everything that separated us from us to be with us because of his great love for us. But friends, this is the good news of the gospel. In the end of the story, we see Bartimaeus gaining his sight and following Jesus, but we hear these echoes of the first story where the blind man was healed. Jesus touches him once. He doesn't see clearly at first. And the gospel is full of people who do not see clearly at first because the world is full of people who do not see clearly at first. And Mark sandwiches all of these failed lessons in between these two stories of blindness so he can offer a word of hope to us that even in our lingering blindness, we might also be healed by Jesus. The grace, friends, is that Jesus is patient, that he is the one who does the work. He has come to bring sight to the blind. That's what a Messiah is. So what do you want Jesus to do for you? Mark offers a couple of choices. You can ask him for help in the life that you want to build for yourself, a life that might have you gain the world, but will inevitably lead to disappointment and complaint because it will never be enough. And that's what it's like to lose your soul. Or you can ask to see the one who will bring you life, the one who is on the road with you. It's your choice. What do you want?